Well, today we're starting this new series called Asking for a Friend. We did this last summer, so we're calling this More Asking for a Friend. It's really just based on your questions. We had the survey up on the website. A lot of you participated. Thank you. Got a lot of surprising things that I found that people are interested in. So if I don't cover your question that you asked, or if there's something that you think, I, I want to do that, I didn't ever get my question in, you can go ahead and tell me, and if it doesn't make this message series, it'll make something later. It'll get put into another message. So I'm just fascinated by what people are wondering about. Today, as we get into the series, we're going to be talking about how do we do this whole dad thing, which is a good question. Um, I'm glad you asked. The Babylon Bee actually has some advice for dads. If you're unfamiliar with the Babylon Bee, this is the onion for Christian topics. And so they had this headline, The most effective fatherhood technique is just saying, go ask your mother. According to a report published Thursday, the most effective fatherhood technique is saying, just go ask your mother whenever a child asks a question or submits a request. The report also noted that because I said so, I'm the dad, that's why, and don't make me get up, were also very effective and productive techniques. (laughs) There you go. That's satire. Do not walk out of here like, that's my takeaway from the message. That's what it is right there. It's not real. It wasn't. So let's just go ahead and be honest, though. Let's just admit that our culture has a few issues with this whole fatherhood thing, don't we? Case in point, how many of you have seen Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? If you haven't, I'm not giving anything away here when I say, if you have gone to see the movie, you will remember this line. He may have been your father, boy, but he wasn't your daddy. Yeah, we have some father issues in our culture, and that movie kind of highlights. That's, in a nutshell, where we're at, which is why it's, you know, something that brings mixed feelings when we talk about Father's Day. Hopefully, you have a great dad, or you had a great experience with your father if he's no longer with us. Some people have. Some people can also say, you know, my story is my relationship with my dad was troubled, or, or not so good, or just not there at all. He just wasn't around. So, so many people have different experiences of dad and father, and that makes it complicated for me. A lot of people can probably relate to the experience of a guy named Marshall Mathers. Uh, a lot of you probably know him as Eminem. Marshall Mathers, like the guy has been nominated for 43 Grammys. He's won 15 or 16 of them. And there's a reason why Marshall Mathers is so popular, especially young, among young men. There's just this palpable anger through a lot of his music that people just really relate to, especially when he talks about his dad. There's a song, it was autobiographical, he wrote called Cleaning Out My Closet. And this is one of the lyrics in that. He said, I wonder if he even kissed me goodbye, talking about his own dad who left him when he was a baby. No, on second thought, I wish he would just die. And that right there is pretty much a lot of guys go, yeah, I can relate to that. And so in 2017, on Father's Day, I get it that a lot of people struggle with the idea of fatherhood. A lot of guys are trying to figure this whole thing out, and they maybe didn't have a great example to work off of, or it's just really difficult. And we're like, where do I get advice? Where do I get input if I want to be a good dad? Of course, the first step is to be a present dad. We get that. You're just being there is part of it. But there's a whole step beyond that to say, well, I'm there, and I'm, I'm showing up. But to be good at raising your kids is a whole different thing. Now, what I don't want you to do is walk out of here if you, you know, if you are a dad and your kids are grown, I don't want you to go like, this is just going to make me feel really guilty and bad. I don't want you to feel that way at all because it's never too late as long as you're still breathing to make things better, no matter where you are in this experience. And so I think like, like me, I can personally say I have struggled and I've really wrestled with how do I be a good dad? Before Kirsten and I got married, We talked about that. We said, we want to be intentional parents. We actually want to think ahead before we have children. 
How are we going to raise them? What are we going to do? Because we wanted to be good. I grew up, my parents divorced when I was pretty young, so I didn't see my dad as much as I could have. So I've kind of like trying to figure that out. Fortunately, I had a lot of good mentors and my dad did a good job when he could, when we were together. But I struggle with that. So if you do, I can relate to you. But we're all trying to figure out what do we do to be a good dad? And, and it's a daunting role. And so what I want to do this morning is take this or take your smartphone app and I want to dig into the Bible and see what some of the teaching is about how do we become better at this fathering thing and how do we put it into practice. And I do want to be very practical as we look at the teaching this morning. If you want to go ahead and take this and start trying to find First Thessalonians, it's, if you're on a paper version, it's toward the end of your Bible. But there's some really practical things in here that I want to bring out. And if you're sitting here going, well, I'm... I don't know if this is relevant to me because I'm not a dad. I don't plan on being a dad. I can't be a dad because I'm a girl. I think what we're going to look at will be relevant to anybody who just says, I want to have a positive influence on the people around me. So don't just tune out because you think this isn't relevant to me. Because it, it can be. So as you're finding First Thessalonians chapter 2, it's spelled T-H-E-S-S if you're doing the search on your smartphone app. So just to give you a little context while you're looking for that so it makes more sense, why is this in the Bible to begin with? This is a personal letter originally that was written from a man named Paul to a church that he had planted, planted in the Greek city of Thessalonica. So if you picture Greece, it's up in the north of Greece on a major, what we would call interstate, 2,000 years ago, big city there. And Paul went into that town with some companions, preached about Jesus. People became Christians. They were baptized. Now, later, he's writing back to these people who can say... I became a Christian because Paul told me about Jesus, and he's giving them more teaching and instruction and encouragement. And along the way, because it is a personal letter, he reminds them of the kind of relationship that they had. It was a very healthy and very positive one. So what I want to do is just go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. They'll be up on the screen here. And then let's go ahead and dig into some of the things that Paul said. So uh, starting here in verse 7, Paul said, you know, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we weren't. We were gentle like little children among you, gentle like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to you, anyone, while we preached the gospel of God to you. Your witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father deals with his own children, encouraging you, comforting you, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So I want to stop there. And one of the things that's very obvious to me, and maybe you're picking up on this too, this is obviously a group of people who loved each other very much. Like, you hear these terms of endearment. It's, they're talking like, we're family. We've shared so much of our lives together. We just have this relationship, like a mom with her little baby, like, uh, you know, like a dad. He said, we work night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to you. That's parent language right there. And it's literal too. Paul literally would preach every day and then he would work at night. He, he made tents and sold them for a living. So he supported himself financially while he preached to them. And he said, I was like a father to you. I talked to you in a way that a dad would talk to his own kids. And it's, it's great. What, really, if, if you are a person who wants to make a difference in someone else's life, you can't get much better than this right here. You share your life, not just your words, but the words are so powerful. And Paul's words were so powerful with them because his example backed up what he was saying. And they were together so much that they would have caught any whiff of hypocrisy that might have been 
you know, the difference between what Paul was saying and what he was doing. His life and his words matched. And they're like, this had a profound influence on their life. So what I want to do is just look today at how powerful our words are as, as dads, how powerful just as people with each other, and how those words can make such an impact that, that goes far beyond the moment that you speak them. I'll give you a great example of this. In 1992, two adventurers, Jim Davidson and Mike Price, climbed Mount Rainier. They climbed the Emmons Glacier, and, and they successfully summited. It was a great experience for those guys. Now, many climbers will tell you, though, the danger is not ascending. It's when you think you're done and you're on your way back down. That's when a lot of people end up dying. And these two guys were walking back down, and they walked across what they thought was solid snow, but it was a snow bridge. This much snow and a whole lot of empty below it, they punched through. They fell 80 feet into an icy crevasse. Now, uh, it was Jim who managed to kind of arrest his fall with an ice pick, and he slowed down enough that he landed on a two-foot snow ledge about 80 feet down in this dark, narrow, icy cave. His buddy, Mike, was not able to arrest his fall, and he banged up himself so bad on the way down. He landed on the same ledge, but he had died of his injuries by the time he hit So you've got Jim standing there bloody and bruised. He's got his now deceased buddy next to him and he's in this dark icy crevasse looking up and he can see this little glimpse of light 80 feet above him and he's thinking, what am I going to do? And the voice he heard in his head at that moment was the voice of his father. See, Jim grew up with a dad who just encouraged him to do all kinds of reckless things. So much so, he said, my mom would just constantly be having a heart attack. His dad was a painter. So he said, by the time I was 12, my dad had me up on steep-pitched roofs painting. He had me up on electrical towers painting. And my dad would always tell me, you can do anything if you'll just keep pushing forward. You've got this. And he said that just that reckless confidence my dad had in me was the thing going through his head. He wrote a book later about this experience. So he's standing on this two-foot ledge, He has no experience with technical climbing at this level. You're going to climb an icy cliff 80 feet out. And he's only got a few ice picks to get himself out. And he started climbing. Five grueling hours later, he made it to the surface. Park rangers are stunned. First of all, how did you survive the fall? And then how did you make that climb? Those words that Jim's dad had been speaking into his life all those years were powerful, and they were tested in that moment. Now, you and I may never have our words that we speak into somebody else's life tested at that dramatic of a level. I guarantee you, though, the influence of your words will eventually be shown in your children's lives and the people around you, the people you work with, the people who are watching you and you don't even know it. And it may not be tested in a dramatic fashion, but it will be tested eventually in little ways. And so you want to think about, what kind of words do I want to speak into somebody's life? One of probably one of the, the smartest and wisest people who ever lived was a man named Solomon, and he wrote something that ended up in the Bible. And this is in Proverbs eighteen twenty one. Solomon said, "Words kill, and words give life. They are either poison or they're fruit. You choose." So you want to think, what kind of words do I want to speak into my children's life? Ones that that make them wither up and die, or words that bear fruit. These are the kinds of words that Paul spoke into the lives of the Thessalonians, and I think it's a great example for us, words that give life and bear fruit. Go back to verse 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians. You'll see what I'm talking about. And this is where we're really going to take some time to draw in. 
Paul said, and just to remind you, he said, you know how we dealt with each of you, like a father deals with his own children, encouraging you, comforting you, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. So these three words are the words that I want us to take away today. Again, I want to be very practical. So if you just want to jot some notes down about how you can implement this kind of speaking into, into your own life and make it your pattern, these are the kinds of words that will bear fruit in someone's life. So let's get into them. First of all, if, if you're speaking to your children or speaking to anybody, let's speak encouraging words. Now, this word encouraging in English is obviously not the word that Paul wrote. 2,000 years ago, he was writing and speaking in Greek. And the word that he would have written down would have been parakaleo, which not try to teach you Greek unless you want to learn it. But it's interesting because you can translate encouraging in English or exhorting, which is a word we don't use very much anymore. Same word that's used to describe the relationship of God's Holy Spirit to us. It literally means to call somebody alongside you. Like, hey, come on up here. Like maybe you're a dad saying, come here, I want to tell you something. Or you're an attorney saying, I'm going to walk beside you through this whole experience and I'm going to guide you through it. I'm going to help you. I'm going to kind of point you in the right direction. And I was looking at the meaning of this and I realized as much as I do this with my own kids, I probably do this as much with my chocolate lab, Rosie, as anybody else. Rosie, come up here. Come on. Rosie, leave the bunny alone. Rosie, get in the car. Rosie, drop the bunny. It's... That's exhorting. That's encouraging. That's, you know, you're calling them up alongside you because you want them to do something. And we got to talk to our human children like that. You know, come here. I need you to do something. Sometimes in my house, this call to action looks like the time to get up song. There's Alyssa. Where's Abby? Abby, she's she's not going to, she won't stick her hand up, but everybody else around her will. Girls, should I sing the time to get up song for everybody today? No. Here's what it looks like, and I won't sing it. Because I don't have Kirsten in here. She's working hall security for children's ministry today. I will grab my acoustic guitar when the girls will not get out of bed for the fifth time. I will fret the nastiest chord I can make. It is awful. It's almost a jazz chord. It's so bad. And, and I'll just start strumming this thing horribly. And then I will start singing off key, which is not hard because I'm already playing off key. And then Kirsten will sometimes harmonize with me off key. It's, it's lovely. And the lyrics, they're Grammy worthy. Eminem, look out. Here I come. Time to get up. Time to get up, time to get up, Abby. It works. It's amazing. I say, you guys want me to sing it again? No, they're out of bed. It's, it works. It's my, that's my way of encouraging them. Oh, man. You know, your call to action might be telling your little ones, hey, come on, let's pick up the toys. It may be, let's, let's get to bed. It might be, text me when you're going to be late as your kids are getting older. There's always needs, this need for this call to action. And here's why. You are training your children to obey authority and to respond and submit to authority in an appropriate way and in a way that's immediate and that is, is always with a good attitude. And so just by the constant repetition and practice of you asking for something and them giving it to you, they're learning a good attitude for life and you're developing this healthy relationship. Now, Mark Mitchell, he's a pastor, he points out there's a couple of things you need for effective encouragement and they're clarity and consistency. Clarity, consistency, or certainty. Now, clarity, here's what it looks like. Because if you're going to ask your kids to do something, they need to be on the same page as you. For example, if you say to your kids, this bathroom is disgusting. The World Health Organization has called and they're shutting it down. Like there's whole new diseases coming out of here. You need to clean this bathroom. Your definition of clean may not be the same as a junior high boy's definition of clean. So we need to get on the same page here. So you need to actually take the time to tell your kids explicitly what you're expecting from them. You know, I, the toilet used to be white. I want it to be white again. That's, I'm being clear. I want to, you to know what I'm asking. Uh, something bit me when I went near your sink. I want that to stop. 
I want to see the original color of the floor again. These are things we're talking about. You want to be clear in your communication about what you expect. The other thing you want to be is certain. Our kids need to know that we mean it when we say it the first time. Because if your kids are doing this thing where they wait until you start yelling to start paying attention to you, that's not good. You don't want your kids to learn to ignore you. They need to know the first time obedience is important. As soon as you say it, they do it. It's for their own benefit, not yours. And they need to know that the rules are the same no matter where they're at. It's not like, well, dad's having a bad day today, so I better be more on, but you know, when he's, when he's like more calm than, no, it needs to be the same all the time. It's same between mom and dad. And it's not different when you go to the grandparents' house. The rules are always the rules. That consistency is for your kid's benefit. So you've got to be clear and certain. And this is really important. Not only, as Paul was saying, you need to speak these encouraging words into your kid's life. You need to also speak comforting words. I think we all get what comforting is, but I'll just go ahead and say it. It means to speak to somebody in a, a friendly way or in a soothing way. And so dads, we need to soothe our children through our words, through the things that we say. When your child is hurt, when your child is confused, when your child is discouraged, it's not the time to just get after them. Sometimes there's time to just calm down and figure out what's going on. They don't need exhortation. They don't need get up here. They need comfort. You know, I think that as I've just observed it, I'm speaking to those of you who are maybe younger dads. I think younger dads in large part are getting this right. I'm very encouraged by what I see in younger parents today because the generation, like especially before my age group, I heard the stories. I even saw some of the older dads when I was a kid. Man, they were kind of rough. Like Elton John gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine last year and he talked about the relationship he had with his, his parents, especially his dad. He said, in my parents' generation, they wouldn't hold you. They wouldn't say they loved you. I was afraid of my father. <coughs> Excuse me. I was walking on eggshells the whole time trying to get his approval. Elton John said, my dad touched me the most when he was beating me. And he went on to say, my mom always said, well, that's just the way we did things in those days. It didn't affect you. And I'd say, what are you talking about? It affects me every day. Elton John's dad died in 1997, having never gone to one of his shows. And it just makes me sad for him. And Elton said, he's been dead for a long time. I'm still trying to prove things to him. I'll still do things to say, Dad, you would have loved this. That is the opposite of what a comforting father should be. There's no award for how stern you can be with your kids. And, and sadly, a lot of dads, whether it's stress or it's just the way they were raised, they think this is important. You comfort your kids as a good dad when you listen to them and you you let them know that what they're feeling is actually important to you. You put the phone down, you make the eye contact, you ask good questions, you just let them talk, you don't judge what they're saying. That's so important. You affirm your kid for who they are, not who you wish they would be. I read this recently in the Harvard Business Review. It was a great uh, article. It talked about the power of praise. And what it was saying was, research says the ideal ratio of negative feedback to positive is six to one. And what the article said is, you've got to give the negative feedback. People don't know how to improve if you don't say, hey, this needs to change. It's just about the ratio. If you give something that's kind of a critique or a comment, like you need to change this, you just need to balance that one out with six positive things. So it's not a one-to-one at all. You need a lot of affirmation for every critique you give your child, and that's a good ratio. They need to hear that from you. You remember the movie The Blind Side? It was Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw. So that was based on a real-life couple, the Tuies, And they wrote a book about their experience working with their own adopted son and then just the foster system in general. 
And one of the things that they talked about was, what do you do with foster kids who've aged out of the system? They have not been adopted. They're no longer eligible for state support. Well, one of the programs that they know about is where they take these kids who are eligible and who are intelligent enough, and they take them and put them as interns in congressmen's offices in, in Washington, D.C. One, one guy was there, and he was in the senator's office. The senator breezed in one morning through the office, noticed that the intern was just rearranging the mailroom. The senator said, wow, I've never seen this place looking so good. Great job. Went on into his meeting. He came out a few minutes later, and the intern looked away and was kind of rubbing his eyes. The senator said, did I, did I offend you? I'm sorry, did I say something? And the kid said, no. No, you're fine, sir. It's just no one has ever in my life told me I did a good job at something before. I can't imagine that. But I've got to believe that there's a lot of people that's true for. This, uh, this is such an, a powerful thing to just give comfort and appropriate words like that. And if you, guys, if you think that's just for moms, that's not for a guy like me, wrong. People and children, everybody needs to see strong men who are willing to say calm words like this. It's so important. Now, Paul talks about a third kind of word, and we need to talk about this too. He talks about compelling words. Paul said in his preaching and teaching, he would urge the Thessalonians. And this is really the most powerful of all the three words right here. It means that you're, you're giving a call to action. It's like you're saying something should be done. And I'm telling you right now, it needs to be done. And sometimes we have to say these words with our kids where we lay down the law, where we say maybe there's going to be some discipline if you continue to do this or don't do this because I'm telling you, I'm going to urge you, this needs to be done. And these are the non-negotiables in your family. I don't know if you have these in your family, things that our family doesn't do this. There's not very many of them, but we know this is not acceptable, or this is how we always do things because you're part of this family. And, and our kids need to know that, where the boundaries are. My, my parents were good at this, too. Uh, my parents were good at a lot of things, but they were really good with this one also. There were just a few rules in our house, but I knew what they were, one of which were, there were words we do not use. And I was in preschool. I still remember it because I was going to go to pre-kindergarten the first time the next day. So we're out on a Sunday afternoon drive in the car. I'm like five, my sister, little sister three in the car. And we pull up to a stop sign. Another car pulls up at the same time, but they ran the stop sign. My dad literally had to slam on the brakes, and we were all thrown forward, none of us in seatbelts. My three-year-old sister, obviously not in the car seat, because who needed that? It was the 70s, right? So, yeah, we were all safe in the 70s. But it was, my parents were obviously frustrated, because, like, you put my family in danger, I had to slam on the car. So they're like, do you see that guy? I thought I would contribute to the conversation. And there was a word that we do not use in our house, but I thought, if there's ever a time, this is the time. And I said, that driver was stupid. And it got real quiet in the car. And my mom looked at my dad, my dad looked at my mom. And then my mom turned around in the seat and she looked at me and she said, would you like to try that again? I knew what my mom meant by that, but I went ahead. I blazed through my own stop sign. I said, yeah, that driver was really stupid. I haven't changed much. My mom looked at my dad again. My dad looked at my mom. They didn't say anything. They just went back home. And my dad sentenced me to five to ten in solitary confinement in my room. It felt like five to ten years, but I was in pre-kindergarten, so it was probably five minutes. But I got the lesson really clear. There are some words we don't use ever, no matter what somebody else has done. Honestly, I feel like I'm going to get a phone call after church from my mom for saying the word stupid three times four now in in the message. But it worked. There's a line, and we need to know where it is. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, true, true story, there's a guy named Eli who served Israel as a priest about a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. 
Good guy. Seemed like he was a, doing the right thing as a priest, but his boys were awful. First Samuel 2.12 says the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. They were just awful. I won't go into detail. It's in the Bible. You can go read it, but I, I just like, oh, you read it and you go, yeah, they were pretty bad. And Eli didn't do anything really to correct his adult sons. So as a consequence, God just passed judgment. This is uh, 1 Samuel 3, 12 and 13. I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Eli didn't do this urging with his boys when they were younger. And when they were older, they just did whatever they wanted. And you think, well, why didn't he? He was a good man. Why didn't he raise his kids better than that? Maybe he didn't want the drama. Maybe he just thought they won't listen anyway. They just got the mind of their own. Maybe he thought, well, they're just boys will be boys. They'll outgrow it. But they didn't. And as a consequence of Eli's poor parenting, these boys face God's judgment. This is a really important thing. That as dads, or just as people who want to make a difference with others, that there are some things that are so important that we hold the line. So those are the words. Words of urging and words of comforting and words of encouraging. And you got to know the right context to use them. If your kid is hurting, you don't exhort them. Suck it up, buttercup. But if your kid is being disobedient, that's not the time to comfort them. It's the time to draw the line. So, And you got to take into account every kid's different. You know, you just look at one kid cross-eyed and they're corrected. You know, others, you got to kind of take the two-by-four to their head to get their attention metaphorically, not, not literally. Well, let's wrap this up. Guys, i got some barbecue waiting for me. So let's, let's apply this and let's get out of here and uh, continue to worship God in an appropriate way with hickory smoke. So there's, a, there's several contexts that you can speak these words into your kids' lives. Dave Stone, he's a pastor down in Kentucky, he talks about these. I think there's just really cool. It's really been helpful to me. I thought I'd share them with you. Number one is just the, the power of mealtime. My whole family, and my girls can tell you this, we have eaten together our whole lives. We love getting together at the dinner table. We eat other meals together when we can. It's, you know, just a lot of life gets done at the table. A lot of stories get told. A lot of lives, situations get shared. It's just something powerful about eating a meal together. And that's just been something that's been very important to us. Dr. Catherine Snow from Harvard followed 65 families over an eight-year period and just studied what had an impact on their life. She discovered that dinner time was more valuable to a child's development than school time or play time. This is powerful. So if you want one takeaway you can have right now, just start eating together once a day. Put the phone down, turn the TV off, make eye contact, ask each other questions, tell stories, what was the best part of your day, what happened, is there anything I need to know about? This is so powerful and so easy. Here's another one, travel time. You've already got the kids in the car, shuttle them from swim to soccer to everything else. Use that time. Some of the, I, for me, the best conversations and most teachable moments have happened driving somewhere with my kids. Just ask questions and listen. Here's the other thing. I learned this as a youth minister before I ever had kids, which, by the way, I highly recommend that. For some, I got to practice on other people's kids as a youth minister before I was a parent. And it worked out really well for me. One of the things I learned was... Kids forget that you're there as the driver when they're talking to each other. You hear all kinds of things because they just forget, Dad, there's no glass between the driver. And you're like, oh my gosh, I got to remember to talk about this later. But I don't want to say anything now because I want them to keep talking. I want to keep hearing it. Use that drive time to talk to your kids. Don't turn on the DVD player. Don't let them get on their phone. Just talk. And then last of all, there's bedtime. And you may think, well, my kids aren't little anymore. This is always going to be important. 
you know, when they're little, you can go in and you can pray with them, read a Bible story, just kiss them goodnight. As they get older, your teenagers may act like they want to see you before they go to sleep. Don't believe them. Ignore them. Even if they act really frustrated, just do it anyway. Because I'm telling you, this is meaningful. That time before they go to sleep, you can put one last positive thought into their head. I don't know if you had a good experience of dad or a bad experience or no experience of dad, but I do want you to know that you have a heavenly father who loves you very much. And that no matter what has gone on in your life and whatever you've kind of interpreted God through the lens of that you've experienced, God is a good father and he loves you very much and he cares for you and he sent his own son, Jesus, to die for you. And that's because he wants you and me and all, everybody around us in this community to be part of his family. And he's a great dad. And if you don't know that yet, just stick around for a while. You're going to realize he is awesome. And he, he loves you very much. And if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, that's why we're here. We're here to connect people to God and each other through Jesus. And we want to help you get connected. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a time of communion, some more songs. And if you've got some things you're thinking about and you want to talk to somebody, I'm available outside after service. Other people will be available. And I'll connect you with somebody who will talk to you, listen to you, pray with you if that's what you need. Right now, I just invite you to stand up and let me pray for all of us right now. Father, I do thank you that we can call you Father, that we can call you Dad, and that you invite us into this special relationship. And I pray for everybody here today that you would just look at our hearts, see what we need, and bring comfort and encouragement to us. You speak all these words into our lives and uh, just help us to hear them for what they truly are and to sense the love you have for us in Jesus. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.